Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm going to talk about winter preparation. And wow, as I was studying up to talk to you, <laughs> there are just many, many schools of thought about what to do and what not to do for winter preparation. I ask on um, Facebook for some questions to address in here, and I got a ton. So this could easily end up being a two-episode deal. But first, I want to say thank you to the recorder crew. Um, the recorder is on the way, and this is going to allow me to uh, record telephone interviews with beekeepers that we want to pick their brain. And the recorder crew, that's Deborah, Michael, Jeffrey, Michelle, William, and Joan. And I also want to add Herbert in Mississippi. I'm sorry, I forgot. I did not see your um, message and, and I did not announce you last time. So thank you for to Herbert in Mississippi for being a part of the recorder contribution crew. You guys, between you and what I had put aside, the recorder is ordered and on its way. So we'll get on that soon. And on that subject, um, while uh, you were responding to the recorder uh, request, several suggested that I set up a Patreon page, which um, I had been a supporter on Patreon of some of my favorite podcasts, like Beekeeper Confidential and um, Beekeeping Short and Sweet with Stuart Spinks. Those are some folks I support on Patreon. And uh, so I did. It is patreon.com slash fiveapple. That's P-A-T r e o n dot com slash five apple f i v e a p p l e and if you want to join me as farm crew over on the patreon page there's no pressure there are some free posts i'm just getting started with putting up posts and then also for the farm crew supporters who are helping me produce this podcast i am going to post bonus podcast episodes and links and that type thing as well as uh, lending support through patreon messages so all that's available and then also there's free stuff there the podcast of course will continue to be free to everybody and if you're able to lend support it is so welcome all right so wow this winter prep thing there were a lot of questions that came in um, via the post Facebook page and I had also posted in several groups that I participate in on Facebook saying hey do you have overwintering questions and the questions poured in um, Jenny said feeding talk about feeding what do you feed and when and talk about insulation versus wind breaks Greg I, I loved it was like how do you know if a hive is ready for winter and wow that's an excellent question and um, I'm gonna try to give you some ideas of at least what I think of here as being ready. Um, Trish asked, when do you put on solid sugar board feeding versus liquid feed? Uh, will they prefer the sugar over honey? Is that bad? And should I wait until I see bees at the top of the hive before I feed? And just to answer that last one is no, don't wait. <laughs> but I'll talk about that in a minute, um, Trish. And Cindy asked about screen bottom boards. Um, what if there's snow and you have the screen bottom board open will that contribute to moisture in the hive and should I use hay bales for windbreaks and will the mice get in them we will talk about all those challenges also there were some tips that came in um, Chris Palgrave in England talked about that his 
key tips were insulation above the crown board, or that's the inner cover for us here in the U.S., insulation up there. Um, he uses a shallow eek, which is like a little, like a feeder rim shallow. Um, sounded kind of like a um, quilt board and leaving the sides uncovered so that any condensation runs down the side instead of on the cluster. This is a big deal. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Uh, Jeff out in the Pacific Northwest said his tips were to decrease moisture and decrease mites. Absolutely. Um, Lori made her own quilt boxes using a shallow super and um, told me how she made hers and we're definitely going to talk about quilt boxes because that was a big deal. Uh, Martha also used quilt boxes and she wraps her hive in tar paper. Maggie uses quilt boxes, a slatted bottom board, a screen bottom board with the slider in and the hives tilted forward so that water will run out. She's covering a lot of bases there. So um, without further ado, let me just start at the top of my list of things to think about as you're preparing for winter. So first let me say, as with everything in beekeeping, it is extremely local. Um, I'm here in North Carolina in the mountains at 3,000 feet. I'm in gardening zone 6. So that kind of gives you an idea of what what I'm dealing with and what my bias is in terms of how to prepare for the winter. Everything that I use here in North Carolina also worked pretty well for me in the Ozark Mountains um, in Arkansas. So it's a pretty uh, general list. Depending on where you are, there may be very specific things for your region. I mean, for example, the folks in the big deep snow regions. I mean, I we can get a couple of feet of snow, but it's intermittent. It's usually gone within, you know, a week or so. Used to be longer, but it's going quicker now and happening less frequently. But, you know, things like snow fences and um I don't have to deal with here. So be sure to ask beekeepers that are experienced right in your area about what they do and if there's something specific to your area. But I'm going to cover some of the the important things in my opinion just in general that applies to pretty much everybody. Number one, you've already verified that your hive has a queen. Um, this is really important. As several people I've talked to, for some reason bees Sometimes they go crazy and they try to make they off their queen in the late summer or the early fall and they try to supersede and that's going to have about in general a 75% chance of working. So in, I ran across this st statistic recently that any time a hive requeens itself um they have about a 75% chance of success. And so that's good for, you know, when you're raising queens, you don't get disappointed if you have about a 75% chance uh, or 75% success of mated queens because you're hitting it right about right. Um, but what that means for folks with just a few hives is if your hive has given a shot of making a new queen late, they may or may not have been successful in that. Also, depending on your weather, if they created some virgin queens, there may or may not have been drones out there left. Um, our drones, where I am in particular, are gone. And so if one of my hives had gone crazy and tried to make a late queen, she may or may not have been mated. So basically you want to make sure that your hive has a laying queen. 
and you know how to do that of go in and you know look for eggs and open larva open white brood if you don't see any eggs or open white brood then you want to put some effort into looking and locating that queen there are times that the queen will cut back on making new brood but but um, I, I don't feel okay unless I have spotted young open brood in the cells then I put a check mark on my list this this hive is queen right that doesn't may mean that she's gonna make it through the winter um, but at least for now she's queen right if for whatever reason you find that your hive has gone queenless then you will want to combine that hive with a different hive so checking for queen rightness to me is number one preventable cause of winter death Number two, you have already verified that you have low mite counts. Um, as you know, my bee yard is chemical free, but I do count mites um, now, <laughs> officially try to keep, uh, keep my numbers. And you, you want low mite counts because if you have a hive that has a really high uh, mite count, there are still options for you in many parts of the country some parts of the country the windows closed and they're on their own but uh, if you have options going in with a, a, a mated laying queen and low mite counts and that they have enough weight on them to me that would be kind of the holy trinity of your first things about going into winter so you've got low mite counts and if you don't you've done something about it you've got a live laying queen in there and then next third about checking the weight um, again this is a fully you know these three things are all about um, beekeeper you know <laughs> beekeeper skill versus beekeeper error and um, I've you know I've messed up on all three of these things in in with bees and but you don't have to you can learn from people like me who've messed up on all those at one time or the other you know there were there's often been falls when it just got away from me and I didn't check to see if a hive had a laying queen and you know they died in the midwinter and when I did the autopsy they had lost their queen and they were you know maybe they were trying to drone lay and um, that's really sad because I could have prevented that I could have saved that population and combined them with another hive but I didn't and I've had losses I try not to going forward since I've learned those hard lessons um, but wait of the hive is also completely within the beekeepers control now hopefully you left enough honey on there for them to get through the whole winter that's to me the holy grail of, of weight is I left enough on there um, for them to get through the winter and because in my opinion there is n nothing better for them to live through winter on than their own honey uh, in my experience, bees that for whatever reason, if I messed up and took too much or uh, or if it was just a bad fall season and they ate all their own honey that I had carefully left them, um, either way, in my experience, they don't get through as well on uh, sugar water. But if you don't have honey and they don't have weight, they will definitely not get through on air. And I've also learned that the hard way. I mean, it, by not... Uh, checking my weights regularly on the hives now some people weigh their hives I just I just can't get that organized and specific <laughs> um, I have practiced with using 
tilt testing. So I've essentially, you know, I take whatever rock or brick I have on the top of the thing off there and I um, holding on to the top of the hive just in case uh, I lift the back of the hive just a little bit. I'm tilting it on the stand to get an idea of the weight. Now obviously this is ballpark and obviously this relies heavily on you having the experience to know what that means, what that weight means. Now remember Mike Palmer's advice, now he weighs his hives, but his advice is if you tilt a bunch of hives, they all feel heavy by the end of the tilting. And this is true. I do not go and check weights by tilting on 10 hives at once because he is correct. By the end, that 10th hive feels really heavy even if they don't have a drop. Um, but I've uh, practiced in the in the summer kind of getting an idea of, of if I'm about to do an inspection on a hive. Sometimes I just do a tilt and then I go in and look at the hive and, and I'm just imprinting in my brain what that tilt weight feel uh, to my arm, uh, what that means once I look in there. You know, does that mean two supers full of honey or does it mean one super full of honey or does it mean they just got a few frames of honey on the outside of their boxes? And over time you do get a feel for it. My goal <laughs> my goal about this time of year is to try to tilt them and I can just barely get the thing tilted off the stand. That's my goal. I li I'd much rather than be too heavy going into winter. Um, I can always take out excess honey in the spring if that's a problem. Um, so I'd always uh, want to err on the too heavy side rather than the too light. Now, sometimes that, that doesn't work. So if the weight is not good on your hives, um, if you, depending on where you are, if your nighttime temperatures are still above 50, I mean, I, I can't tell you exactly um, because it depends so much on where you are, but if your nighttime temperatures are regularly dropping below 50, then it may be too late to feed 2 to 1 or heavy syrup. Um, also, at least here, feeding, you know, feeding 2 to 1 syrup at this point for me they're not going to have they're probably not going to have time to cap that honey and that's going to create a lot of extra it's going to create a bunch of open um, sugar water in the comb and that creates additional potential moisture problems um, you just sometimes have to make the call about whether which seems to be the worst risk them running out or them being uh, too moist in there some of the another solution that's better if you happen to have this option is what I was taught to call robin hooding. <laughs> I really like that. But it's, you know, if you've got a hive that's just got way more honey than capped honey than you know they will need, or if you've been stashing capped honey in your freezer, maybe thinking about extracting it for yourself, but maybe not, then you're going to feel real lucky if you come across a hive right now that is too light because you can simply give them capped honey. Um, in, of course, you want to put it above the brood nest and um, we'll talk about that in a little, uh, uh, but if you have frames of capped honey to robin hood onto light hives, then you're in luck. And if neither of those things are true, if it's too late for two to one feeding, and this applies later in the winter, you don't have any um, frames of honey to robin hood or maybe you do but it's gotten too cold for you to open up the hive and do that uh, addition 
I mean, if you've got a whole super of, of honey, uh, even if it's fairly cold, it, I, I think it might be worth it to, you know, take off the inner cover very quickly, set that super of honey on there, close it all back up. I think that's probably worth the risk of, um, of them having a, a 30 second chill. Um, and, but then if you've missed those windows, which can happen to anybody, so don't beat yourself up about it, then, uh, fondant or sugar blocks can come in. I don't, I don't use the fondant because I don't want to have to, you know, do superheated sugar. That just seems like, <laughs> um, risk management says no on me and superheated sugar in the kitchen, but, um, sugar blocks, which I'm going to put up the recipe for on the Patreon page. It will be available to everybody, free available to everybody. And this recipe came from Lori out in the Pacific Northwest. I like her recipe best. There's there's many. You can use any of them. But the sugar blocks or sugar bricks, you do not have to heat the sugar. You are going to be mixing just enough water and maybe some vinegar, depending on how you roll. Uh, maybe some honeybee healthy. And you're going to be massaging it into dry sugar. And it ends up making a brick that that is really easy to just set on top of the hive. You will probably need a, a little narrow feeding shim. They sell these as like baggy feeder shims um, or an eek as my friend Chris calls it over in England. Um, gosh, I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> Chris, you write me and tell me if I'm not. But um, that way it gives us some space above that uh, top super uh, to put your sugar brick or block. Uh, I fashion my blocks thin enough that they fit into the rims that I have. Um, you can MacGyver this around however you need. I mean, I have, uh, I've actually set a sugar block on top of the inner cover over the opening so that they could access it, you know, through that hole. If uh, uh, This is back when I didn't regulate the thickness of my sugar blocks and um, sometimes they wouldn't fit in my particular shims or feeder rims and so I would have to just put them over the hole in the inner cover and then set a box around them and then sometimes I'd put some stuffing on top of that and I'll, I'll tell you about that later when we talk about uh, quilt boxes but um, sugar blocks have saved many a hive in my yard now someone did ask um, I believe it was Trish who talked about when to, uh, to put those on and essentially, just you put them on when you need to put them on. You definitely don't wait until you see the bees hungry, sticking their little heads up on the top, because they can really get stressed and lose a lot of population. If you wait till then, if they don't have enough honey in the hive, there is a level of stress um, that that just creates, because they know how much uh, stores they have. And the other thing, and this is uh, something I also learned the hard way, is if they starve, they will starve very quickly. Like it can literally be overnight. Um, because uh, someone told me, and I haven't found an exact source, but someone told me that the that bees basically they don't ration feed. Like if they're running low, they don't start rationing feed. Everybody eats their full rations until there is no more, and they share the last drop, and then they all die at once. And so sometimes if you ever have the sad misfortune to um, open an, a, what was otherwise a, a healthy hive and you've got inches and inches of dead bees down in the bottom and they don't have a bit of reserves, it is the saddest thing in the world. I have done that. I hope to never do that again because that was 100% beekeeper error 
and um, it's just not necessary, you know, to, you can always have a sugar block or, or the fondant if you have access to it and want to use that. You can, I'm told you can buy it at uh, like bakery supply stores. I don't know anything about that and I don't know about the formulation, but you could look up stuff on that. Um, but the, the sugar blocks to me, even if I think the hive is going to have enough to get through, usually I put sugar blocks on and it just eases my mind so that I don't lie awake on a frigid high wind January night and wonder if everybody has enough food. If they have that little sugar block and they work their way up to the top and they've eaten themselves down on the honey or if the honey's just on the outside edges and, and whatever reason they can't do it. The sugar block, I put it right over the middle, so if they've worked their way up there, um, I have found it to be a great um, nerve, <laughs> help for my nerves, and then also um, help for the bees. Now, I'm going pretty fast on all this because I'm I'm thinking of this episode as kind of an overview of the things you need to think about and, you know, try your best to get these items covered. The next episode, I will probably go in depth on a couple of topics because there is a a lot of different schools of thought. Um, Vince, actually, next podcast, I am going to try to do a deep dive in exactly what you're talking about. You know, the uh, struggle between insulation versus convection and condensation and all that stuff. But um, one another one in my quick overview, and this one I probably should have said first because it is uh, critical and easy and that is make sure you don't have queen excluders still on take off the queen excluders because what will happen is as the bees move upward to get to the honey if you still got a queen excluder on the queen gets left out and freezes to death and so then you've got a bunch of queenless bees well fed but queenless and so therefore doomed so get those queen excluders off um, and do it quick before you can forget because that's that would be a terrible feeling um, so definitely get the queen excluders off and and while you're taking those queen excluders off uh, the next um, topic is and this is a I will admit is a pet peeve of mine because well I won't even tell you why but <laughs> um, in my opinion you want to condense the size of your boxes of the hive to better match the size of the bee colony that lives within it. This is something that I see um, some beginners go wrong on in all seasons. Um, in the summer seasons what it does is lead to pests because there's too much room and that small colony of bees can't patrol everything. And in the winter it again creates too much room um, now, there are people who say, oh, well, it doesn't matter because the, the bees in the cluster, they warm the cluster, not the box, and so therefore the size doesn't matter in terms of them keeping warm. I'm just going to have to give that a big whatever, okay, but in my experience at least, I have found in the winters, if I take the trouble to, you know, while I still have warm days, to match the size of that stack of boxes to the size of that colony inside, I don't know exactly what all the mechanisms are, but they survive better. And um, they also have less problem with getting pests like um, mice in there. Because if you've got, you know, three empty boxes on the bottom, they've moved up in the top. And if you don't have mice, mice mouse excluder on there, you're definitely going to get 
little field mice get in there they build this big old awful nest I mean it's not awful it's nice as far as little mouse nests go but you don't want it in your hive they will chew up a bunch of comb if they make a big enough mess the bees hate the smell of mouse pee I, I don't have a source for this but I can just tell you it's true and um that they may abscond in the spring as soon as it gets warm they want to get the heck away from that big old mess in the bottom um, and so you don't want mice nests. It's also gross. They chew through your foundation. So you've got a bunch of ruined comb down there and then you, it's just gross. So just don't do that. And so that actually is something I forgot to put on my list. And that is uh, start thinking about, uh, well, actually, hopefully you already have. And that is reducing your entrance. Now, earlier in the fall, I talked about reducing your entrance to prevent robbing. And then as the weather gets colder, maybe there's less robbing potential, depending on where you are. I guess some people always have robbing potential, but up here, past a point, the robbing potential is um, gone, usually, unless you have one of those warm spells in the winter. But anyway, um, you want to reduce the entrance to prevent mice from getting in. So just like regular hardware cloth, the big, the kind, um, I don't know the number, but it's you know, like the kind you would use on the bottom of a rabbit hutch. <laughs> that kind um, will prevent mice from getting in, to the best of my knowledge. Um, it will not, that won't double as a, as a robber screen. So what I have seen uh, pictures of is people using, and this is like the super cheap method. You don't, you know, you can buy, a, a, you need, basically in your shop, you need a roll of the little, the small B hardware cloth which I believe is number eight and then the big regular hardware cloth um, but the big regular hardware cloth can you be used as a, a mouse excluder and um, you can uh, uh, put that over the entrance of your hive at that point you've still got full ventilation which may or may not be a good thing depending on many other factors and then if you've if you're doing a robbing screen you can either put the little number eight um, hardware cloth on there as we've talked about before or you can do both you know put a layer of the big hardware cloth to keep the mice out and then put a layer of the little hardware cloth to keep robbers limited to a small entrance that you provide but still the mice can't get in it so there are many many types of um, entrance reducers just the wooden kind will not keep a mouse out they just chew the opening big enough for them to get in I've also seen people take the wooden entrance reducers pick the size of the door that they want and then put the big hardware cloth over that entrance so now you've got a reduced entrance but the mice still can't get in um, I have some metal entrance reducers that kinda has a little slide bar and um, that just and it has holes about the size of your pinky finger um, that mice can't get in but the bees come and go and I found those to be pretty handy you can either um, screw them down or I just thumbtack them down but if you just have something sitting there the mice will pull it off um, so you want to uh, thumbtack or push pin or screw whatever it is you have in there some of the wooden excluders with hardware cloth they'll jam in there tight enough that you don't have to do that but so attend to your entrances so that mice can't get in and then depending on where you are uh, match the size of that opening to um, to a size that the bees can defend pause because I'm also thinking about if you have a solid bottom board um, then then that 
front entrance is your main uh, ventilation source of incoming air so you just want to be aware. If you've got a screen bottom board you've got plenty of ventilation. Um, in fact uh, once it gets really cold I put the uh, the Varroa boards, the little signboard things in my screen cover. Again it's not so much to keep the, the bees warm as you've heard often before quote it's not cold that kills bees it's moisture. I do believe that's true but I also believe that cold stresses bees and makes it a little harder for them to get through the winter and makes them need more honey. So to me since I've attended with to ventilation and condensation in other ways which I'm going to talk about um, I put the boards in there uh, for the winter. Now I don't particularly have to tilt them because the if the water gets in because of the way my boards there it's loose and it I've never had a problem with puddling water um, on my boards some person one person did note that they tilt their hives anyway once their boards are in and if you have a solid bottom board you definitely want to uh, put a little board or tilt your stand or whatever you need to do so that if you poured water in that hive it would then run out the front entrance because if you create a lake effect then again you get into the high moisture which is just bad in every direction. Um, so let's see so I think I started out talking about condensing the size of your stack to match your cluster and then also potentially condensing the size of your entrance while keeping in mind whether depending on whether you have a screen board or a solid bottom board then remember that's your lower ventilation. Again when I put my um, um, Varroa, the little signboard things that slide in under the screen bottom boards, it's loose enough that there's still air coming in from down there. And again, I'm, it's not like I'm trying to seal it up uh, at all. It's just I don't. We have high winds here in the mountains, and I definitely don't want air blowing up um, on them. You know, all night long. We've we've had zero degrees and high winds for a couple of days, and it's not that they won't survive, but to me, it's just less stressful to them to. Uh, not be in the wind. Which brings me to windbreaks. And this just depends so much on your particular site. There are, um, <laughs> I see like my friend uh, Mark down in, um, oh where are you Mark? Outside of Charlotte in uh, North Carolina and, uh, and my friend Brian. I see pictures of their yard and the hives are set up in a way that our wind would take them down it just you know it would just take them down we have high gusty winds intermittently here in the mountains and so our hives have to be uh, ideally strapped down in case they do blow over then they don't bust apart uh, you know strapped together and then maybe strapped to the stand and some bricks and some heavy things on top we definitely have to manage the wind in terms of blowing the hives over depending on where you are you may have the wind especially the folks out west um, can have just steady constant wind which if that's blowing into your hive either through the front entrance or up through a bottom board that's just going to be a constant stress to those bees and they may or may not make it so attending to wind breaks and this is all about being familiar with your site and what direction the wind comes from when I got this land um, I had to do a quick assessment to the best of my knowledge uh, of where would be the most sunny 
wind-free site and also because I'm on a hill I was looking for the thermal zone of the hill so that they would be above you know the kind of valley snow and I got really lucky and also had had years of practice of uh, from a permaculture point of view of studying zones and uh, you know the site so I got lucky and I picked a great I picked the thermal zone out of the wind and I was very proud of myself but another problem now the forest has grown so much that the the branches are kind of reaching over my hives which is a whole different set of problems that I'll have to deal with but um so anyway um dealing with wind now that you know if you depending on how your stand how your hive stand is my hive stands are just uh, two by sixes cut made into a little box like thing so it, it automatically reduces the wind flow under the hive which I'm pleased with um, and in my home yard they are in the most wind free site of the entire property which I'm thrilled with so um, I don't have to put up an additional windbreak now I will confess when we've had some of our polar vortex action, I've actually pulled my car down into the field and parked my Subaru as a windbreak for the hives. <laughs> and um, also feeling like, oh, this is high risk because if these trees blow down, they'll blow down my car. But um, so I hardly ever have to do that. But, uh, you know, you do what it takes for the bees, right? But one of my out yards is I'm a little bit concerned with the wind there because I don't know that site well enough. And um, I think this winter I am going to put a windbreak um, on their northern and western sides. Windbreaks can come in different. It doesn't have to be heavy duty. You can set up, um, you know, uh, use some rebar and do some bales of straw. Uh, back several feet because you don't want to create a big mice reservoir <laughs> to then torture your hives but you know you they it can be you don't want to get them right up on the hives in my opinion at least um, you in my opinion you want to keep your insulation if you do that and your windbreaks kind of separate but um, different people may have different methods for that but if if I were if like at this site that's my out yard when I set up the windbreak I will either uh, buy several bales of straw and set them up strategically several feet behind the hives on their windward side and that will break the wind and send the wind over the top of the hives. The rebar will keep the straw bales from blowing around which our wind can easily blow uh, bales around, uh, square, little square bales. And um, Or my other option, just depending, this all just depends on how I get myself together, would be some T-posts and some landscape fabric attached securely to the T-post. Now that's kind of less attractive. I'll have to think about all this uh, since I am on somebody else's land. But um, the windbreaks, at least in my experience, don't have to be taller than the hives. Because remember, if, if you're on the windward side, um, you know, even if the windbreak, if it's a few feet back, even if your windbreak is, let's say, four foot high, um, then it's going to deflect the air up and over the tops of even pretty much the tallest hive. So keep that in mind. Again, that's another reason if you back up your windbreak a few feet away from your hives, then that makes that windbreak uh, send the air over um, over the top, which is better, in my opinion, than blowing right on them or definitely better than blowing up through the screen bottom boards. So look up some windbreak ideas, but in my opinion, you don't want to get those bales of straw right up on the hives. 
<laughs> I saw a photo in a Martha Stewart thing one time, and it just drove me crazy because they had literally put the bales of what looked like hay right up against the hives, and I just thought that was a terrible idea, but that's just me. Okay, so um, another thing, and these are not exactly in order, but this is one of those early winter or late fall kind of things, is to combine weak colonies. Now this is hard for some people because if you're combining colonies and both of them have a queen, then I think you probably have to pick which queen to send to glory and off because and you, and you know you don't you may not pick the right one. <laughs> I mean this is a this is definitely a risk. There are some people who say, "Oh, just combine them and let them fight it out." Well, to me that's kind of double or nothing and I don't want the surviving queen to be damaged and then not be able to make it through the winter. So what I tend to do is if I have a really puny hive and just does not have the look of a survivor, um, if I, let's say I have two of them, um, then I'm going to pick the worst off one and get rid of that queen with just, and it, you know, it's just a roll of the dice. And then I'm going to combine them with a newspaper. And that just gives them population because there, whatever your site is, there is a minimum population of bees that are required for them to live through the winter. Period. End of story. Now, that magic number, whatever it is for your site, may be higher or lower depending on how hard of a winter you have. So, you know, erring on the side of a nice big fat population, um, I that not always, but usually that gives you a better chance. Um, and so combining the hives, it is hard. It's very hard. It's I still don't like to kill a queen, even if I have, you know, 10 to spare. I just, I don't like it. I do it with respect. I know people think that's silly, but um, I just really respect these beautiful, incredible, magical, magical in the realistic sense creatures. So um, if I have to cull or kill a queen, I, I do it respectfully with my hive tool. Um, some people put them in, um, put the dead queen in alcohol, so they'll have a uh, queen pheromone, but uh, I just haven't ever needed to mess with that yet. But um, if I have to kill a queen and then uh, combine, but there is real truth. One of my older mentors, he has a thing, he'll say it over and over and over, take your losses in the fall, take your losses in the fall. And at first that didn't sink in with me because I'm like, well, I can take my losses in the fall or I can take them in the winter. But what can happen, and ask me how I know, it's called the hard way, um, is if you have two really iffy hives, if you have a cold winter, they're probably neither of them are going to make it. But if you combine those hives with what you think is the best queen, you've just upped your chances of having a live colony in the spring. And if they both were puny, then that queen is not somebody I want to reproduce, even if she does make it through the winter. I mean, that's that's great. She's a survivor, but she's not my top of the line. And that is who make it through the winter beautifully and come out rip-roaring in the spring. Those are the ones that I'm going to want to make more queens from. But the take the losses in the fall really means go ahead and take that loss because your loss could be double if you don't take the loss of one in the fall. So everybody has to make their own decisions about that and it is a thing with experience. You do over time, remember everybody this is long haul, over time you are going to learn to be able to spot the population that will make it through winter, a typical winter at your site. Now um, it's easy to hit it wrong if you have a really bitter winter but you'll get an idea 
below which you're like you take a look at that and you're like mm, they're not gonna make it and so you have to make some decisions there now um, I believe it was someone named Dee Dee <laughs> had, had written me and said talk about the bee barn and how that works and I, I will uh, the bee barn is not a place that I'm gonna you know overwinter full-size hives it's a place that I'm gonna attempt to overwinter very tiny nucleus colonies that would definitely be dead in in my sight if I did not put them in a bee barn uh, with an interest to the outside but anyway I'm, I'm gonna talk about that later because uh, it's still in process slow but steady that is me all right so I'm going to pause here because I am over time, but again, I will not wait because next I'm going to talk about insulation and quilt boxes and ventilation. These, all three of these things, ventilation, quilt boxes, and um, insulation, they're all connected. The important thing is in, is, is to, okay, let me just put this in there. Uh, you definitely want some type of upper entrance in order to vent the moisture, especially if you don't have any insulation on the top of that hive. Now, there is a type of insulation, a quilt box, which kind of changes the equation on that upper entrance. Um, and by upper entrance, mine, I use the, um, the inner covers that have a notch in them. And basically with those notches, you just need to make sure that the telescoping cover is pushed forward enough so that that entrance can let air out. Um, I have managed to kill a hive by accidentally pushing that lid tight. And so they didn't have an upper entrance and they didn't have insulation. And yes, they died. And it was probably from condensation water dripping from the roof on the cluster and that was another dumb beekeeper error and I mean not dumb just human beekeeper error and I made it and I've and now I check I stick my hive tool um, up under the edge of the telescoping cover once I put the brick back on I stick the hive tool up there and make sure I can get the hive tool in and out easily um, between that edge of the telescoping cover and my notch um, so that they can have um, airflow and um, the like, like I said, the quilt boxes change this a little bit. I'm going to talk about that next time because this is a whole fascinating uh, topic that many people disagree on. And then I'll talk about insulation, yay or nay, or um, whatever you decide. But thank you so very much for uh, putting up with this high-speed overview. If I went too fast, um, <laughs> I, I won't mind if you listen again and just want to jot down things or imprint things in your brain. I have to listen several times to things um, before I have them and just kind of do a mental run-through of your yard and what you have yet to do and put that checklist up against your realistic calendar of how cold it gets. Um, anything that requires the hive being open, you know, you want to get that done quickly. And um, these other things, I mean, like adding a quilt box, for example, or even adding insulation, at least in my site, I've still got quite a bit of time before I need to decide and, and do those things. So thank you so much. I'm almost out of breath. I've talked so fast trying to get it all in. Again, I would deeply welcome you joining me as farm crew on the Patreon page. At the same time, there's no pressure. If um, the bottom, uh, the entry for Farm Crew is $4 a month, it helps me pay for the podcast hosting. Um, the people, the other supporters have helped me pay for the recorder. 
and uh, I really appreciate that. And should I have any money left over from any of this, it will all go directly to this project. It will go to buying books to share with you on this podcast, and it will go to attending conferences and taking interviews and making notes for you. I'm, it's all about uh giving it back to you because um, I I have a day job thank goodness and that pays my bills so um, I'm just would welcome help and contribution and investment in the podcast if you are able absolutely no pressure if you're not and that is at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n patreon.com slash five apple f-i-v-e-a-p-p le all right thanks so much um i look forward to talking to you very soon i'm gonna get on this next one vince hang in there with me because i am working on your comment (laughs) you hit all the high points um that i do want to talk about thanks to all of you have a wonderful rest of your day